seated, and if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, we're in Proverbs chapter 7. I wonder, and you might think about this and get back to me, children, we can dismiss you guys to children's ministry. Angela and I were talking this morning on the way here, like one of the things, one of the reasons why we just love the Providence kiddos is because we know their parents, and we see all of their behaviors manifesting and, you know, all the parental attitudes. Like, the other day, Paxton was somewhere, and a bunch of little girls wanted to hang out with him. We're like, Paxton, come here, come here. And he just ran away the other direction. And we were like, I could see both of his, his mom and dad doing the exact same thing, which is kind of what Proverbs 7 is about, you know, running from the wily woman. So uh, Paxton's been listening to my sermons. I wonder if you could think about this. Maybe you have an answer to it. I don't, I don't know. if I, I was thinking about this this morning. Is there another section of scripture where one particular sin is discussed so frequently as sexual sin is in Proverbs, say, 4 through 7? It's a big chunk of Bible dealing almost exclusively with one particular sin. Today we're going to look at the idea of sexual joy or sexual sin, depending, and saving the world. And we're going to look primarily at verses 21 through 27. So Proverbs 7, 21 through 27. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim she has laid low, and all of her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is on the way to Shoal, going down to the chambers of death. So as I mentioned before, I, don't, I can't think of another section of scripture that is as expansive as, say, Proverbs 4 to, although this issue is discussed as early as Proverbs 2, this whole section of scripture discussing the problem of adultery. And I, I realize that one of the things that would just be helpful to, to ask is, why is adultery bad? Like, it, it, it's described as bad over and over again in this section of scripture we've been looking at. Why is it bad? And I think the moral therapeutic answer is because it hurts people, which is not entirely incorrect, of course. But I think it goes deeper than that. Why is adultery bad? Well, I think in, in, in helping us walk through this, I'd like to talk about some things that are good and some things that I have noticed for me bring a tear to my eye. A good tear. Years ago, when Brooke was a little girl, she was watching the movie Spirit for, uh, you know, the 30th time. And there's a scene where Brian Adams is just belting out the, the, the song, the song for the, for the movie Spirit, which is about horses, wild horses, if you don't know. And uh, I walk in, and Brooke is, you know, standing in front of our little TV with the VCR buzzing, and she is just worshiping. She's, like, crying. And she's just standing there, like, soaking in Brian Adams and the spirit vibes. And I was like, Brookie, like, what's going on? You know, how come you're crying? And she's like, Dad, they're just so free. 
And I ah, uh, <laughs> why did I talk about that? Um, so in, in seeking to answer the question, why is adultery bad? I would like to talk about some things that are just beautiful and that bring a tear to my eye. Okay. And I'm going to start in a place you're going to be surprised by. And that is, I want to talk to you about the way that Britain, the island of Britain, appeared to Romans in the first or second century. And this is a quote from a Roman writing his descriptions. He had wandered into this place. They called, they called Britain the place where land and nature end. It was the most remote, exotic, weird place ever. And the Ro one Roman is writing another Roman, and he says this. Britain is marshland because it is flooded by the continual ocean tides. The barbarians usually swim in these swamps or run along in them submerged up to the waist. Of course, there are they are practically naked and do not mind the mud because they are unfamiliar with the use of clothing. And they adorn their waists and necks with iron, valuing this metal as an ornament and a token of wealth in the way that other barbarians value gold. They also tattoo their bodies with various patterns and pictures of all sorts of animals. Hence the reason why they do not wear clothes so as to not cover the pictures on their bodies. They are very fierce and dangerous fighters protected only by a narrow shield and a spear with a sword slung from their naked bodies. Uh, and that's not the beautiful thing that makes me wanna cry by the way. The beautiful thing that makes me want to cry is, is that a few centuries later, those same people were building cathedrals. That's what makes me want to cry. The zero to 60 ascent, the resurrection of a culture out of the swamps and into the cathedrals. That's freaking beautiful. And there's another thing that's like that. That's kind of the macro scale. The micro scale is individual lives that I've been privileged to see time and time again, individuals going from the swamps to the cathedrals in their own lives in a year or two years, like these massive bolts of ascendancy, triumph of beauty, truth and goodness in the individual life, like literally out of the swamps and into the cathedrals as individuals. This is very sweet. This is, this is the fundamental payment for a pastor who's in it for the right reasons, at least most of the time. It's to see with your own eye individuals ascend out of the swamps. And then it's to see with the eye of faith that something we're doing here with the word even this morning has the power to change the world and change our culture. And the truth is, is that the, the, the common reason behind these ascendancies, whether on a macro or micro level, is a King Jesus who's smiling with confidence that only uh, omniscience and omnip, om, omnip, omnipotence brings you. He smiles and says, behold, I make all things new. And this is beautiful. And I can get a little more specific than that. I need to. You know, to say Jesus changes people and they get out of swamps to citadels or to cathedrals, like, yeah, that's, that's true. Well, what's, let's, let's be a little bit more specific. What, does, what is he doing? What's the thing Jesus does that lifts people out of swamps? 
And this, I think, will surprise you. He teaches them how to love others. What is happening in these glorious zero to 60 moments of ascendancy where people suddenly elevate to a new level or cultures elevate to a new level is not themselves kind of finding utter satisfaction or actualization or all of that nonsense. It is something happens, a culture goes from swamps to cathedrals when the individuals within that culture learn how to love other people. And that's the thing that actually changes lives. Individuals who learn how to love other people like Christ loves people have the most dramatic changes in their lives. This is when all the dramatic change takes place. If you were to really look back and ask, it was, yeah, the word opened up to you, so on and so forth, but you were learning how to love other people. This was at the core of your most dynamic and transformative periods of growth. You were free from the slavery of self-obsession and caught up with Christ in the mission of being a servant. And this is when we grow. There's this gal on TikTok who makes music reservations. Here's her, here's her tagline. This is why I started following her. She's like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I don't remember her name. And I make music recommendations for people who think that the 90s was 10 years ago. It's like, that's me. <laughs> I think the 90s was 10 years ago. And what you notice, and the reason why that's such a great tagline is you do notice that at some point, and all of us that are, you know, my age or whatever, all of us understand, like, there was a point when I got off the fashion train, and there was a point when I got off the music train, and, like, I just, like, I stopped at some point. And now everything advanced in front of me, I kind of have to, like, go out of my way to figure out. I need people to recommend things to me and so on. Christians, there's really, this is just a sad reality, but... Many people stop growing and start aging when they stop being others-oriented. If you want the key to Christian aging well, it is to stay persistent in the task of loving other people. It's the way to stay out of the swamp. Now, I'm going to talk about things that way, but I don't want us to miss Jesus behind this. Right, I just there's this beautiful Mitch Hedberg joke, which is stand-up comedian, and you, but you have to tell his jokes in his voice, and and the way he talks about it is he says, I have a belt that's holding up my pants, but I have belt loops on my pants that are holding up my belt. I don't know what's going on down there. I don't know who the real hero is. The way that the Bible is written about God's love for us, the gospel, Jesus, and our love for others, it's often not super clear, okay, who's doing the work here? This is, this is how 1 John is written. This is how John 16 is written. This is why 1 Corinthians 13 is written. It is not obvious and immediate that someone who knows the gospel will love others. And if it was obvious and immediate, then you wouldn't need 1 Corinthians 13, and you wouldn't need 1 John, and you wouldn't need John 16. So there's something going on here where I feel like I could jump in on either end and wind up hitting the other side. There's some kind of belt belt loops scenario going on here. 
And of course, Jesus is the real hero behind all cultural transformation. But I'm telling you, cultural transformation, individual transformation, when people come out of the swamps and into the cathedrals, it is because practically they started loving others like Christ wants them to. This is, this is me betting the farm, promising you with absolute certainty that's what's happening. Now remember, we're asking the question, why is adultery bad? And everything I just told you was just a beautiful counterpoint to what our text is actually saying. Because our text is actually saying something not, not, not praiseworthy and joyful, but sad and tragic. It's, I've just described an upward ascent of cultures and individuals, but what this text describes is a downward ascent. And so I'd like to say, add a third thing here. Jesus changes people. The thing that really, really changes is their ability to love others and the most specific context for that that takes place that has the most cultural power is marriage. When people start doing Christian marriage, cultures change for the better. And when people stop doing Christian marriage, cultures descend back into the swamps. Now, Doing Christian marriage is not a bunch of rules. It is a context in which we learn to love like Christ. So when you hear some people say everything I've said, it comes off as being sort of like we just need to go back to the 1950s. And that would not be my argument whatsoever. My argument is simply this. When a man loves his wife like Christ loves the church, and when a wife loves her husband like the church loves, loves Christ, they are fruitful and multiply, and I think I can take you all the way through the Bible and show that that is the trampoline or the rocket booster, the thrust that moves people into their dominion mandate to rule and subdue and be fruitful and multiply. It's the context that makes the most difference, both in individual lives and collectively across a culture. Jack Hayford, some of you remember Jack Hayford. He wrote a book called The Spirit-Filled Marriage. And he said, the covenant of marriage is the single most important human bond that holds all of God's work on the planet together. J.C. Ryle said, the marriage relation lies at the very root of the social system of nations. The nearer a nation's laws about marriage approach to the law of Christ, the higher the moral tone of that nation has always proved to be. Why is adultery bad? It's running us in, it's running us toward the swamps and away from the cathedrals. So we see this, this idea that Christian marriage advances, and I'll, I'll continue to support that idea throughout this message, and that sexual sin pulls down. So let's think about that for a second. Sexual sin pulls down. Look back at verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver and as a bird rushes into the snare. Let's just say, let's just hit, hold on to that for a minute and say that there are three animals mentioned and they all have clear designations in scripture for us to what they mean or what they represent. What does an ox represent? Hint, just look at me. No. Uh, 
strength. Ox represents strength. What does a stag represent? Quickness. And what does a bird represent? Freedom. So I don't know what to do with the stag. Let's just kick that out for a second. We could talk more detail about all this. We don't have the time. What you can say is a sexual sin pulls strength and freedom away from people. Okay, and so what you could say at a cultural level is that we get enough people who are losing their strength and losing their freedom, what's going to happen? Well, the, the passage tells us at the individual level, it will cost them their life, but look at verse 24. Now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Shoal, going down to the chambers of death. Now, let me say another thing really quickly. The way that this is described and discussed in Proverbs, it is clearly not some sort of um, anti-woman, like they're the problem kind of thing. Adultery here is just personified. It's just being personified as like, this is something you should be exceedingly careful of. And once we lose some of our literal grip on things and, and look at it the way that God wants us to, we begin to also realize, well, this is just descriptive not only of individuals, but this is descriptive of a whole society that surrenders biblical marriage, rejects biblical marriage. It is, an, it is a descent back into the swamps, or what verse 27 says, into shoal, worse than the swamps. You think this swamp's hot. And so there's this micro and macro level of thinking about it, and it's essentially the opposite of everything that makes me cry. It's, it's, and it makes me cry in the other direction, right? It's the sadness. It's the, it's the tragic loss, the tragic descent away. And again, this is not away from the 1950s or the 1850s. This is simply the tragic descent away from human beings loving each other with faithful, loyal kindness and care. If, if people will do that, we, we go up. If we won't do that, we go down. Why is adultery wrong? We're, we're zeroing in on the answer to that question. Let's think more specifically now. Three reasons why adultery is wrong. Number one, your body and your soul are connected. Your body and your soul are connected. Look at verse one of Proverbs chapter seven. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. By now we are super familiar that the prescription to resist the adulterous woman throughout Proverbs is to get the word inside of you. But what I want you to notice is, is that time and time again, from the whole book so far, when the father is trying to get the son to think seriously about taking in the word, he uses body parts over and over and over again. I went back through all the seven chapters, and I just listed the number of times, and I don't have the numbers for you, but here's the different times when, when the father has said, take the word and apply it to your body. He's like eye, fingers, neck, lips, feet, head, bones, ear. Over and over again throughout the text, we, or throughout the book, we've got this thing going on. When the father is trying to tell the son, 
take God's word in, he has to use language associated with the body. And here's why that matters. What we might fail to understand is that our bodies are fundamental to our spiritual health. Of course, we know that what is not happening here is that uh, the guy's taking the Bible and writing it on his feet or on his binding, you know, wearing necklaces and so forth. We know that's not happening. So we know it's not literal, but we fail to understand how essential our notion of the body, of our body, our physical body is to our well-being and our spiritual growth. Can you be spiritually healthy with a sick body? Yes. But you cannot be spiritually healthy with a body that you use to sin repeatedly. You hear the distinction? Can you overcome the hardships of the curse in sickness and be healthy spiritually? Absolutely you can. Can you, can you be healthy with cancer? Can you be spiritually healthy with cancer? A thousand percent. Can you be spiritually healthy willfully subjecting yourself to the cancer of sexual sin? Absolutely not. Now, why do I have to address this? I mean, it's kind of funny, like all the things that, you know, I have to address that I feel like actually are useful to people. Like, why is adultery bad? Um, I think it's really God's gift, by the way, that we have to go through seasons in our culture where we have to answer these questions again. I, I think that it's easy for someone like me to get crotchety and get off my lawn about having to answer the same questions every 15 years. But this is God's world, and he's directing it with his providence. And maybe he's causing us to have to answer these questions because it's good for us to answer these questions. Why is adultery bad? We're getting there. Why, why is your body, why do we have to talk about your body being important to your spiritual life? Well, there's a book called Earth and Vessels, Why Our Bodies Matter to Our Faith. And this is a, a guy I take seriously. I think he, he thinks well. Um, and he writes this. Over the past 20 years, evangelicals have balkanized, they've fractured and broken up into several different schools of thought each of which has their own approach to theology, culture, and church practices. Despite the disagreements, though, almost everyone agrees on this one point. Traditional evangelicalism has deeply Gnostic tendencies. What does that mean? Well, it, it, in the case of this conversation, it means evangelicals have gotten super comfortable thinking that the body doesn't matter, that it's all the spiritual world. And so we can meet in shoeboxes, a little uh, preach to the architect. We, we can meet in drab shoeboxes and think like, it's fine because the church is not a building. And we can like, we can like be totally neglectful of our health and say, that's fine because my heart's right with Jesus. That we, Gnostic tendencies is the, is the tendency to look at the external and the physical and with disdain or, um, or, or sort of like a lower sense of appreciation and thinking that it doesn't affect anything else. Now, you would think that Gnostics would always be aesthetics, that they would always be like the people who live in the desert and don't ever eat anything, and like, you know, they're never with a woman and so on. Now, you'd think that's where Gnostics go, but it's exactly the opposite. I mean, some Gnostics go there, but most people who think the body doesn't matter, guess what they wind up doing? Indulging the body. So if you find the denominations, just there's a, a, a BMI, a, a 
you could do an obesity index of denominations and you could find where this belief is the most prevalent. This idea that we are just waiting to be raptured spiritually into a, you know, raptured away from this devil world and this whole physical thing that's decaying and so on, this complete disrespect of physicality, you can find it in hotbeds in certain places. And what happens is not when you dismiss physicality, it's not that you, you neglect it exactly, it's that you overfeed it, you don't discipline it, you don't make it submit to God. And that's what you see every time this trend arises where people stop respecting the role of the body in their spiritual lives, you'll see it in sexual indulgence more than anything else. And this goes all the way back to the first century Gnosticism. This is a consistent trend. And so Paul, now the heathen knew, the heathen knew that their bodies were connected to the spiritual realm. They didn't have cultist prostitutes for nothing. Like they knew, they were wrong about what they thought, but they knew there was a connection between the body and the spiritual world. And so he would never have to tell a Corinthian, your body is connected to your soul, like a natural Corinthian. But when a Corinthian gets spiritualized, when they become Christianized, the Gnostic capacity opens up. It, it, it becomes a temptation. And that's why in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, Paul has to tell them, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. How does, how does adultery tear down a people and a person? When you are committing sexual sin, you are sinning against yourself. You are sinning, you are creating conflict within yourself. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we, we do try to tell ourselves, like, it just doesn't matter, I'm forgiven, Jesus is with me, I have grace. It's like, nope, you are a divided person. And one of the things we're going to see is that a divided person sows division. So how does sexual sin tear down a society? Because divided people divide people. They are divided people. We are, when we are engaged in sexual sin, I won't say they, when we are engaged in sexual sin, we are divided people. First Peter 2, Peter says, Beloved, he loves these people. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You see this divided person theme, like, you are waging war on yourself. Your body does matter. You, you can't be spiritually healthy and use your body knowingly as an instrument of sin. You just can't. And when this area gets right, people's lives transform pretty quickly because it is ultimately about love and it works its way out in surprising ways. And you might say, okay, why is it that someone who is divided sows division? You know, I don't have time to go into that. Why? We can't go so many whys in. But I would point you to James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? 
Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? People who are at war inside, so war on the outside. People who are divided inside, so division on the outside. So one of the things that happens when God lifts a person or a people from sexual sin is they actually become whole people in a way that they could never have become until this issue was finally addressed. The seductress lies. And again, we don't think of this as a person. We think of this as the collection of lies represented in the sin itself. And one of the many lies is, is that this can be a compartment of your life that won't contaminate the rest of you. And it's just like, that's just not how it works. Number two, second reason why adultery is bad. God avenges the oppressed. God is the avenger of the victim. Psalm 146, 7 through 9 says, God executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He raises up those who are bowed down. He loves the righteous. He protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow and he thwarts the way of the wicked. Why does sexual sin lead us to the swamp, and why does getting free of sexual sin get us out of the swamp? Number one is because you're just dividing yourself. You're waging war on your own soul. Number two, God, you're creating victims. <laughs> you are taking part in a system of usury. It is, it is unbelievably ironic that people are examining our history, our, our, our sinful history with slavery and how it has affected us today when dumpsters behind Planned Parenthoods testify to a far more problematic issue at work in this life, not because of the physical slavery, but because of our slavery to sex. Here's the other lie the seductress says. There will be no victims here. And that is just not true. Whenever a culture gives in to sexual deviancy and sexual sin, there is always somewhere a dumpster. People don't talk about it. We call it something else. There is always a pile of victims. We get brazen with this stuff eventually. And we start using phrases like body count. And it, it belies our understanding deep down that victims are involved in this sin. By the time Jesus entered the world, both the Jews and the Gentiles were up to their necks in victim-creating sexual sin. The Jews viewed women as little more than property, and the Romans were even worse. Non-citizens were simply objects. There's plenty of first century literature you could read that essentially says the slave boy's body is nothing more than a repository. End of story. Who cares? He is property. And the fact that you can't imagine thinking that way is a direct result of the law of Christ and the law of love that has been categorized into our culture because that way of thinking is the natural way of thinking, the historically natural 
dominant way of thinking. Some of you should really feel your pessimistic eschatology getting checked hard in this sermon. My goodness, how things have changed. We find those statements to be repulsive. Praise be to Christ. But the idea that all sexual sin leads in some respect to victimhood is absolutely true. It's simply that none of us, the Bible certainly wouldn't, argue that there's any such thing as a blameless victim entirely. There was one of those. He died on a cross. You may have heard of him. But other than that, we have to get familiar with this idea of saying people can have some level of consent and still be a victim. This is... This is we, we cannot argue from the world's conservative, the conservative world's perspective that consent or age equals equality or lack of victimhood. That is simply not the way the Bible portrays this. This is a text that demonstrates that very thing. This young man, he wanders into the wrong part of town. One suspects he knows where he is. But he is seduced. He is a victim. He has been seduced. That's how God sees this. Now, what we, what we're, the, the arguments I'm trying to make here are that as God looks down the sexual life of this country, he sees far more victims than we do. And God is the avenger of the victims. And so why does a culture that throws off sexual restraint wind up in the swamp? And why does a culture who embraces sexual restraint wind up in, this, in the cathedral? Because God is not against the culture like he once was. God is providentially over every nation. He causes some to rise and some to fall, some to be blessed and some not to be. He allows some blessings to be exceedingly temporal, uh, exceedingly materialistic. While he allow, he, he, but he has uniquely blessed countries that have decided, the men have decided, I'm going to love my wife alone. And the wives, I'm going to love my husband alone. Those are the people and the cultures that get out of the swamp. Why is adultery bad? It has a ton more victims than we realize. And friends, like if you're struggling with, for instance, you know, I, I'm on TikTok. TikTok. TikTok is terrible for thirst traps, you know. And uh, like they're just overt. It's like, how do I process? How do I process this? Like, how do I stigmatize this? As I mentioned two weeks ago. How do I get my heart to agree with the truth of the situation that this is wrong? Here's, here's a few thoughts. Um, here I am looking at this. There's an 11-year-old boy somewhere looking at this too whose whole dopamine cycles have been, are being rewired right now, whose whole reward circuitry is being rewired. There's a 15-year-old there's girl who struggles with bulimia that's looking at this right now. There are victims everywhere. Sexual sin is like a victim factory. And let's not believe the seduction that it's not. And so one of the reasons why we get out of the swamp when we walk away from this is we're not, we're not victimizing people like we were before. God isn't so angry with us in that respect. Third, third, third reason why adultery is wrong. And this is the one that I think deserves the most conversation and a follow-up down the road just and that is God is the third party in every marriage. God is the third party in every marriage. And I, I, wanna, I want that word every to be extremely explicit right now. 
Sometimes you hear uh, Ecclesiastes 4.12 quoted, a strand of three will not be broken. Ecclesiastes 4.12. And you'll hear that, and you'll hear a pastor, a well-meaning pastor, say that there are two kinds of marriages, those that are easily broken and those that are not. And the ones that are not easily broken are the ones that put God in the mixed. And I would tell you, that is just not the historical or biblical way of thinking about it. God is a part of every single marriage. He, marriages are not contracts, they are covenants. And I want to discuss the difference between that. So whether or not you voluntarily enlisted God in your marriage is not a question. God was already there. He is the God of all marriages, all Muslim marriages, all marriages. God is the God. That was a bad example. There's tons of complications for that example. Disregard that. God is, God is the God of all marriages. Let's just leave it to that level. Because I want you to understand that, that, that marriage is a covenant and not a contract, and that this is huge. Proverbs 2, this is when we first start hearing about the forbidden woman. Proverbs 2.16 says, So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman and from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth, and forgets the covenant of her God. What's the covenant mentioned here? She forgets the covenant of her God. The covenant mentioned here is the covenant of marriage. She's misunderstanding the nature of marriage, and this is something we all fall into. I have fallen to this many times. It is exceedingly easy to forget that God has his own stake and interest in every marriage, and that covenants are way different from contracts. Suppose you have two business parties and they form a contract and then things change and they actually call each other up and say, hey, this contract's not working anymore. Is it working for you? Not working for me either. And so these two parties agree, you know, this contract's not working anymore. Let's call the lawyers and get this thing invalidated. And like literally nothing bad has happened there. You know, it's, it's kind of cool. They all agreed, this is done, let's move on. That was a contract. What's the difference between a contract and a covenant? Um, a, a covenant is, is like a contract, except God is the third member. And you don't get to tear asunder what God has joined together haphazardly. There are reasons why God would agree that this marriage should end. But what we must understand is that marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant and so in adultery, what we're really, what's really happening here is, is that the adulterous person is sinning against two people, and one of them happens to be, you know, Yahweh. That's, that's huge, because you want to understand, like, why would a culture that has turned its back on monogamy, faithful marriage, declines? Like, think of all of the households that are being seditious toward their covenant, toward God. They, they really are uniquely provoking God in many respects. Malachi 2.13. And this second thing, this is God speaking through his prophet, this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
This is God being provoked against a whole people because of their faithlessness toward him and the wife in covenant. Did he not make them one and with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Why does an abandonment of of commitment to covenant marriage lead us to the swamp? And why does restoring that get us out of the swamp? God is active in judgment over sin. Do not regard the, the slowness of the Lord as absence or indifference. And a nation full of people who are being faithless in their covenants are provoking him. Or as Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Got, now, now, how do we apply this? One of the things I want to say is that if as a church we decided we're going to be really committed to this ethos of restoring marriages in hard positions, of honoring the covenant of marriage, of producing godly offspring and so on. See, what will happen sometimes when people are looking at a church, they'll come to me and say, well, what kind of things do you do? And what they mean are like, what are your programs? And I kind of want to say like all of those little rugrats, like that's, that's one of our programs. The marriages that keep those kids safe, that's one of our programs. Like the proclamation of the truth against the seduction, that's one of our programs. If we could simply commit to being the exception, what right now would be the exception to the rule, and pursue this with zeal as individuals, as men, as women. My, my friends, this is, this, is not a, this is not something to simply be taken for granted. This is not something to just be assumed anymore in the local church. To have zeal for this is not something that should be taken for granted. To speak clearly about the lies is not something that should be assumed. What we're seeing as we look at this is there's a way to the pit and there's a way to the mountain. There's a way to destroy strength and freedom. There's a way to build it. There's a way to turn on God's judgment. There's a way to receive God's blessing. There's a, a book uh, called Marriage and Civilization, How Monogamy Made Us Human. And William Tucker writes, he's the author, the rule is simple. Those who form traditional families succeed, those who don't fail. And all he meant by that was monogamy, faithful, covenantal monogamy. And then he points out this other thing. He says, but here's the weird thing. In, in an entirely natural explanation, monogamy does not exist. Monogamy is an artificial imposition on the biology that we see in the world. And of course, if you're a Darwinist, then monogamy is absolutely contradictory to your perspective. But the author of this book, who's it's a very pro-monogamy book, essentially has to say, this is not a natural quality. And this is the great challenge of being a Christian is to see the miracles that are actually there. 
Because if you don't see him, you're just taking God for granted and you're growing dissatisfied. You think your life doesn't count for anything and you're like, where's God and all this? It's like, well, what? monogamy is by actual definition a miracle. <laughs> That's the truth. And if we get to be that miracle and be a small part in keeping people out of the swamp or even maybe saving the world, I think that would bring a tear of joy to our eyes. So let's become people who understand that our bodies matter and that we are either using them to bless our souls or wage war against them. And let's choose to stop being divided people. Let's, let's make this commitment. Let's have all of our sexual experiences with our spouse and none without them. There's a, there's a world of meaning in that one sentence. Let's just make this commitment. I am going to submit this area of my life entirely to God's provision for me through my spouse. And sometimes that's going to be easy and sometimes it's not, but I'm going to trust God as the third partner in our covenant to provide for me in this area. Let's be people who understand that this so-called world of sexual freedom is producing innumerable victims and let's have nothing to do with the systems that are spinning off victims left and right. Let's just become people of the covenant. Now back to my swamp for a minute. This idea of the Brits, and I'm thinking now of the Scottish, being the heathen they were. Remarkably, remarkable heathen they were. Yes. Loved, loved nakedness and blue paint in particular. Had never, never met a maid they wouldn't bed and so on and so forth and vice versa. And now we're, now we're looking at the Westminster Abbey and we're looking at, you know, we're, we're looking at the, the, the Scottish Reformation and a man like John Knox, who might be John the Baptist incarnate just about. And, whew, that's glorious. Andrew Murray, who is an expert on those particular Scottish things, wrote this. One of the words of scripture, which is almost going out of fashion, is the word Covenant. There was a time when it was the keynote of theology and the Christian life of strong and holy men. We know how deep in Scotland it entered into the national life and thought. It made mighty men to whom God and his promise and power were wonderfully real. They take the man in Proverbs 7 who's caught and his freedom is gone and his strength is gone and his quickness is gone. And you say, man, if that man resists, he's, he's freer than he was a minute ago. He's stronger than he was a minute ago. He's becoming a mighty man. Murray writes, it will be found still, this idea of the covenant, it will be found still to bring strength and purpose to those who will take the trouble to bring all their life, including their marriages, under control of the inspiring assurance that they are living in covenant with a God who has sworn faithfully to fulfill in them every promise he has given. And this is divided people becoming whole people and divisioned people becoming one people. And out of the swamps we go. Let me pray. Lord, as we turn our attention now to your table, which is the covenant of your blood. We praise your name that we can stigmatize a sin 
and put all our shame on the cross. We are not forced to destigmatize things that are awful for the sake of our own guilt because you have made an end to all of our sin. As far as the east is from the west, so you have removed our sin from us. And though our sins were like scarlet, you've made them white as wool. God, we get to say the truth about the sin because the deepest truth of the sin is, is that my sin, all my sin, not in part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And if we can't stand firmly on forgiveness as our foundation, as grace, as the, the rock that we stand on, we will never be able to help a, a culture get out of the swamp. We will be so caught up by the way that our own sin testifies against us. And Lord, let us repent, but let us repent and believe the end result of repentance, which is complete and total forgiveness, being right with you. So God, let us approach this table this morning with confidence, not as confidently righteous individuals, but God, if necessary, even before we approach the table, let us quickly call out to you and say, yes and amen, Lord. I want nothing to do with the swamp. I want to walk with you. I want to be a whole person, not a divided person. I have been a part of the problem. I don't want to be that any longer. Lord, please forgive me for my sin. Help me to seek out people who will help me walk faithfully in this way. But God, let me right now stand on Jesus Christ, who is my way out of the swamp. Lord, we love you. We're thankful that we get to end our time every week by celebrating your provision for our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And I leave you just simply with the end of the passage I read from 1 Corinthians earlier. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body.